Hello and welcome to Resources Radio, a weekly podcast from Resources for the Future. I'm your host, Daniel Ramey. Today, we talk with Hannah Druckenmiller, a new fellow at RFF. This is the second part of our two-part series introducing new RFF fellows, and we couldn't be more thrilled to welcome Hannah to RFF and to Resources Radio. Hannah will tell us about her fascinating paper that estimates the value of forests, not just in the marketplace, but for society. We'll also talk about a project that she's involved in that's using millions of photographs from the 1950s through the 1990s to construct what are essentially satellite images of the developing world from before we had images from satellites. Both projects are really fascinating, so stay with us. All right, Hannah Druckenmiller, my new colleague here at Resources for the Future. Welcome to RFF and welcome to Resources Radio. Thanks, Daniel, and thanks for having me on the show. So, Hannah, just like the episode we did recently with uh, our other new colleague, Penny Liao, um, we're going to ask you a couple questions about your background, how you got interested in environmental issues, and then we're going to talk about a couple different areas of your research. Um, So let's start off uh, going all the way back to when you were a kid. When you were young, growing up, were you interested in environmental issues? And did you have sort of experiences with the natural world that were important for you? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I've been interested in environmental issues for probably as long as I can remember. I grew up in New York City, but my parents exposed me to the outdoors constantly. And probably the place we spent the most time was the beach. So I always really loved the ocean. Uh, We would go swimming, fishing, really anything to get me out on the water uh, I wanted to do. And when I was in high school, I was lucky enough to go to a place called the Island School, which is this really unique school that's located on an outer island of the Bahamas. And it's in the middle of nowhere, uh, but it's in an absolutely beautiful location. So it's right on the water um, next to a mangrove. And the whole concept behind the school was that learning should be experiential. So instead of learning biology from a textbook, you actually go out and survey the mangrove or snorkel in the coral reefs, and then you come back into the classroom and talk about what you saw and um, how everything there was interacting. And it ended up being a really, really formative experience for me. Um, It exposed me to all sorts of environmental issues, uh, especially around sustainability and around um, how human and natural systems are interwoven. And I think that's probably the biggest reason why I decided to pursue those topics uh, when I went to college and and my PhD program. Yeah. Wow, that sounds amazing. Um, I want to go back to high school and (laughs) go snorkeling amongst the mangroves. (laughs) Um, That sounds really great. Um, so one, you know, there are sort of two tracks that we often find um, uh, environmental economists have taken. Some of them kind of start with an interest in the environment and then choose economics as a tool to work on that issue. And then some folks kind of start by, you know, wanting to be an economist and then discovering environmental issues and kind of going that way. So which kind of led the way for you? Was it the environmental angle or the econ angle? It was the environmental angle. In college, I started out as an environmental science major. And I had a focus on oceans, so I got to take all of these amazing classes in marine biology and um, ocean chemistry, the physics of waves, but I also took some courses in marine resource management, and I got pretty interested in fisheries. One of the things I liked the most was that it was at the intersection of a bunch of different disciplines. So you had to understand the biology, but you also had to understand social and political factors um, in order to manage these resources effectively. 
And so I took a class called World Food Economy at Stanford, which is taught by Roz Naylor, um, or it was back then. Um, and she just so powerfully conveyed uh, to me um, what a useful tool economics was for understanding how systems work and also for affecting change in those systems. Um, and so that really led me down a path. I was um, my senior year, I started taking a bunch of classes in economics and decided to eventually pursue a PhD in economics. Um, and I never ended up doing any research on fisheries, but I think I maintained the general idea that economics uh, is a framework through which you can think about how to optimally manage resources. Yeah, that's really interesting. Yeah, I, I, I kind of want to, we're going to talk about some other research projects um, in, in a couple minutes, but I'm curious, given your background, whether you've um, sort of thought about pursuing ocean issues, fishery issues, you know, ocean resource management stuff. Is that something you're hoping to get into at some point? Uh, it absolutely is. I keep having projects on the back burner that are focused on oceans, but one of the things I found really challenging is just that it, it's much harder to find high quality data to work within that sphere. And so I'm hoping that I can not only contribute to answering some of those questions, but also producing data sets that help others uh, answer those questions too. Yeah, that's interesting. Is it is the reason that there's little data because it, everything's underwater? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so imagine um, we can get fairly good counts of natural resources that are on land through surveys. We can do ground surveys or aerial surveys. But trying to count the number of fish that are in a stock in the ocean is hard. Um, and we have ways to estimate that. Um, a lot of them are based on how many fish we are pulling out of the ocean. Uh, but we have very limited ability to observe what's going on there. And it's it's part of the reason that I've always been interested in oceans. It's um, They are so unexplored and unexplained. Uh, it's really a unique place in the earth that, that covers more than... Um, you know, 70% of surface area, but we have very little idea of what's happening in most of it. Yeah, that's so interesting. Um, well, so that's a conversation for another day. Um, let's move on now and talk about a couple of uh, research projects that you, you've you got going. Um, and instead of talking about oceans, we're going to talk first about forests, and then second about um, the air. Um, so starting with forests, um, the, the first question I want to ask you sounds like a really simple question, but it's actually the basis for your job market paper, and it's really fascinating. So uh, so the question is, uh, how much is a tree worth? <laughs> yeah, so um, that question is kind of what motivated my job market paper, um, which is focused on estimating the social and economic value of healthy forests. And um, a lot of my work is motivated by the idea that we need to be able to quantify the value of natural resources so that we can um, know how to manage them, so that we can weigh the benefits they provide against the costs of environmental protection. Um, and for my job market paper, I decided to focus on forests because they're one of our largest sources of natural capital. That's true both in the U.S. and around the world. Um, and we think that forests provide a whole different array of ecosystem services, but we don't have a really good idea of how much they're worth in terms of dollar value. Unfortunately, we've seen large declines in forest health around the world over the last several decades. Tree mortality rates um, have doubled in the last 20 years. And so my paper really tries to understand the consequences of those declines in forest health for human well-being. I think in general, the challenge with valuing natural resources 
is that uh, many environmental goods and services, including trees, don't have a clear price in the market. So we could go out there and try to estimate the value of a tree by looking at how much timber costs, and that would give us part of the picture. Uh, but we know that trees also provide other benefits. They provide aesthetic value, um, air purification, healthy trees protect us against floods and fires. And we want to capture all of those benefits, which in economics we call non-market benefits, um, when we're thinking about the total value of a tree. And so that's what I try and do in the paper. I try and take into account both the market value of trees and their non-market value um, so that when we're thinking about how to manage forests, we can weigh that, that dollar value benefit against the cost of investments in forest health. Yeah, that's great. And you do, you do that in, in lots of different, really interesting, technically challenging ways. And we're not going to get into all the details uh, of the methods, but can you give us like a thumbnail sketch for the wonks out there, uh, how you um, estimate some of those market and non-market benefits? Sure. So I won't get too far into the weeds, um, but I can provide you with a sense of uh, how I measure forest health, uh, which is not straightforward, how I measure economic value, and then how I try to create a causal link between those two things. So for forest health, I basically use tree mortality as a summary statistic. Um, and I do so for a couple reasons. The first is that we have pretty good data in the U.S. on tree mortality over time. So the Forest Service actually runs a pretty cool survey where they fly planes over almost all forested areas in the western U.S. and they circle areas where they observe dead trees. And so we have these nice annual maps of uh, where tree mortality is occurring and, and how severe it is. I also chose to focus on tree mortality because it's a pretty stark indicator of forest health, and it's been increasing a lot over the last several decades. So it's something that scientists are really understand are interested in understanding the consequences of. Um, to get at the economic value of trees, again, I'm really focused on capturing both market value and non-market benefits. So market value is pretty straightforward because we can just go out there and see what price people and firms are willing to pay for timber tracks. Non-market benefits are more challenging, uh, but luckily the field of environmental economics has spent a lot of time developing methods to, to estimate non-market benefits. And one of the most popular approaches is called hedonics, which is based on the idea that environmental goods and services should capitalize into property values. So you can think of this as um, I would probably be more willing to pay more money for a home in an area with lower levels of air pollution because I value my air quality. Or I would be willing to pay more money for a home in a healthy forest than one in a degraded forest because I think that healthy trees provide me and my family with um, some sort of benefits. So what we can do is we can look at the price premium that homeowners are willing to pay for a higher quality um, environment, and then that is the dollar value that we assign to that resource. So that's what I do in the paper uh, to get at those two different types of benefits. And then the last step is to establish a causal link between forest health and the value that, uh, that we place on trees. Right. Um, and then here comes the beetle. <laughs> yes. Yeah. So... Um, we really want that link to be causal because we're, we're using this information hopefully to guide policy decisions, and so we don't just want a correlation, which means that we need some sort of random variation in forest health. 
And so what I do is I rely on a natural experiment that's based on bark beetles. So if you're not familiar with beetles, um, they're the leading cause of tree mortality in the American West. They're these tiny bugs that um, burrow in the bark of trees, and um, when they breed, they can cause mortality events. And something that's really neat about beetles is that their survival is heavily dependent on temperature. And in particular, there's this temperature threshold at very low temperatures where we see um, mass mortality rates in bark beetles because their tissue freezes. Um, and so what we can do is we can look at, at years that had days just above and below this threshold. So those years are pretty comparable in terms of the rest of the weather distribution. Um, but just one additional day below the threshold causes large differences in beetle survival and therefore tree mortality. And that gives us a way to compare forests that should be similar along many dimensions, but one has very high rates of tree mortality and one has very low rates of tree mortality. Yeah, that's great. And um, yeah, it's such a clever way to look at it. And I remember when I was reading this paper, just like having having a blast thinking about these different parts of the the, the West in particular where, uh, you know, beetles were surviving or not and how that can tell us so much about uh, about the value of, uh, of these forests. So what are some of the key results that you came up with? So the first part of the paper is really focused on establishing this relationship between temperature, beetle survival, and tree mortality. And um, this was not a new idea that I came up with. This theory that temperature should affect beetles, which should affect mortality, is based on modeling exercises that um, the Forest Service has done for decades. Uh, but a lot of these models haven't really been stress tests in, in the data, or we don't have a um, clear mapping of exactly how temperature translates into survival, translates into tree mortality. Um, so the first part of the paper does that. Unsurprisingly, I find that um, beetle population sizes are um, sensitive to cold temperatures and that tree mortality is very sensitive to beetle survival. So there's this strong link between uh, very cold days and tree mortality the following summer. Um, I think that's interesting in its own right, because with climate change, we're expecting increases in winter temperatures, which would lead to higher rates of beetle survival and higher rates of tree mortality. Um, so this is just another thing we need to think about um, when we're thinking about managing forests in a changing climate. But the bulk of the paper is really focused on understanding the consequences of that tree mortality for human well-being. And I find that tree mortality greatly reduces the value of timber tracts, so that's the market value of forests, and it also has pretty big impacts on local property values, which again are intended to capture some of these non-market benefits. Um, to give you a sense of magnitude, I find that a pretty significant mortality event, so you can think of that as like 10% of trees in your forest dying, um, would reduce local property values by 1% to 2% and would reduce the value of timber tracts by about $2,500 per acre. Uh, so these are pretty economically meaningful effects. I'm also able to look directly at the effect of tree mortality on um, some specific environmental services. So I look what happens to air quality, um, wildfire risk, and flood damages when we see mortality events. And I find that tree mortality is actually a strong driver of all three of those natural hazards. Uh, so this gives us some intuition for why people are willing to pay more for a home and area with healthier trees, because um, we have a sense that, that healthy trees not only provide us with aesthetic value, but might also provide us with hazard protection. So when you add all those things together, uh, I estimate that 
a tree in my sample is worth about $40 to get at your original question. But it's worth noting that there's huge variety in this value over space. And so as you might expect, there's much higher value for trees that are located in timber producing regions and trees that are in areas with high population densities because more people are exposed to the benefits that those trees provide. Right. Absolutely. Um, that's it's so it's so cool to like have all of these pieces, um, uh, these complex moving pieces go into the meat grinder of the analysis and then you come out with forty dollars. Um, for a tree. And I know that's an oversimplification, but, um, but I love thinking about it that way. Um, so, so that's one really fascinating area uh, of your research, Hannah. Um, I want to ask you now about another one, which, um, also sort of captured my imagination when I learned about it. Um, and this one is all about, um, uh, using photographs, millions of photographs taken from aircraft in the middle of the 20th century, um, uh, of what were then 60 different British colonies, I, I think mostly or maybe exclusively in sub-Saharan Africa. Um, so what are you doing with all these pictures taken from airplanes and uh, what information are you trying to gather? Sure. So this is a big project that's actually a collaboration with um, researchers at Stockholm University and UC Berkeley. The main goal is to extend our understanding of where people were located, where infrastructure was, and where resources were back in time before data was collected at large scale or in any sort of systematic way. Part of the motivation is that the research community has really benefited from access to satellite imagery. So starting in around 2000, really high resolution imagery became widely available. And we were able to take that imagery and make it into maps of um, human development, of environmental resources, of things that we care about at global scale. And researchers have used these maps to understand relationships between society and the environment. We can look at how deforestation rates have changed over time, or we can look at what happens when you add a road to an area, do natural resources decline. Um, and so it's really under, it kind of transformed our understanding of, of global change. Um, but a big limitation of this data is that it only dates back a couple of decades. And a lot of the questions that researchers are interested in studying span a longer time period than that. Um, so the idea of this project is to try and take advantage of these large archives of aerial photography that were taken over the course of the 20th century to essentially extend the satellite timeline backwards to the 1940s or 50s. Um, and we like to think of it as kind of providing a window back in time to let us see what was happening on the ground uh, before we had really good data collection in a, in a lot of these developing countries. So what we're doing in the project specifically is we have this archive of photos that was taken during the process of mapping the British Empire. And essentially what the British wanted to understand is where people were located and where resources were located and how these things were changing over time. And we want to understand something very similar. Um, so what we're doing is we're taking all of the old images and we're using them to generate data products that map out um, the location of natural and built capital. And one of the really cool things about the archive is that the countries are not only visited once, they're visited multiple times between 1940 and 1990. So we can actually um, create data sets that, that span different decades and understand how the locations of people and resources were changing over this time period. Um, it's turned out to be a really big undertaking. Um, the photos are 
in boxes in the UK, uh, physical prints. And so the first thing we need to do is get them onto our computer. So there's a whole scanning operation to digitize the archive. Um, then the pictures come to us as black and white prints of a location in space. But unlike a satellite image that you might download, they don't have any information embedded as to where that image is located in geographic space. And so that's something that we have to learn um, from the information contained in the image. Um, and so we've created this whole machine learning pipeline that essentially takes these millions of individual images and stitches them together into kind of seamless maps, something like you might see if you opened Google Maps and looked at the, the satellite layer. And then the last step is that we want these images to be helpful to researchers. And so instead of just handing them a picture of Kenya in 1950, we want to give them data that they can actually use in their analyses. So we need to extract structured information from the imagery. Um, and so we're applying out-of-the-box machine learning tools like convolutional neural networks that input the, the images and output um, data on road networks or building footprints. Um, we're making maps of land use so we can measure forest cover, croplands, urban extent. Um, and these are data sets that we're lucky enough to have access to now from about 2000 to 2020. Uh, but we think the research community will really benefit from having access to them going much further back in time. Yeah, it's so fascinating, this project. And it, it makes me wonder... Um, I, I know we won't have time to get into all the details, but um, it, it's astonishing to me that um, you can develop an algorithm to learn where photos were taken without any of that kind of metadata or contextual information. Um, is it possible to describe like in a general way how the machine learning algorithm can you know, ultimately figure out where the photo was taken in space? Sure. So um, I'll note at the beginning that there is still some human input. Um, and we do have some information about where the images are located. So what we get is we get a box full of images. Um, they might be hundreds of images if you're looking at a small country like um, Barbados or thousands of images if you're looking at a larger country like Kenya. And along with these images, we get a hand-drawn map of where the plane flew. So you can think of this as a map of Kenya, and then there's a bunch of lines across it that show um, where the plane was flying. So we know the order of images. And what that allows us to do is to use algorithms that can take two images that have overlap and identify common points between them. So um, it's more complicated than this with computer vision, but intuitively it's like if the computer sees the same road intersection and in two adjacent photos, it's going to align those images so that that road intersection is overlapping. Um, we do this for every pair of images in the sample, but unfortunately it's not as easy as that because if you just lay down one image and then sequentially add images on top of that, these small errors in matching really propagate to make something that looks um, unrecognizable. <laughs> Um, and so our team developed this, this procedure that essentially optimizes the location of all images jointly. Um, so, so you can kind of think of this as a person um, that's trying to align multiple images into a mosaic on their desk, and you have to shift each image a little bit. And when you shift one, you have to shift another so that it matches. And you do that enough times that finally you get something that you're happy with. And so that's like the intuition of what the computer is doing um, in this case. 
And so that builds us a mosaic of the whole country. And then we do have to have a person go and um, place it in geographic space. So um, they identify points that um, haven't changed over time, for example, a coastline or a major highway intersection. And by finding just a few of those points, we're able to locate the entire image um, on, on the modern map. Wow, that's so cool. Um, so, so you're putting you and your colleagues are putting all this time into assembling this information. Uh, you've already hinted at some of the research questions that um, you or others might be able to answer using these data. But um, for you, are there particular applications that you have in mind? Yeah, so um, we do hope that the, the data will be used across a wide range of disciplines. But personally, I'm most interested in understanding the long term impact of climate shocks. Uh, a nice thing about this data is that it allows us to to look at how impacts persist over time. So not just in the next five or 10 years, but over half a century. Um, and it also allows us to look at climatic events that happened before we had good, good information on social and economic outcomes. Um, so one event that I'm really interested in studying and that my team plans to work on is the effect of the Sahel droughts on human migration in Africa. So these were these decade-long droughts, um, very severe, that happened in the region between the late 1960s and early 80s. And it's thought that they caused massive famine and uh, displacement of people. But unfortunately, we haven't been able to really study the impact that they had because we don't have good data on where people were located during that period. Um, Climate scientists often think that the Sahel droughts will be a very close analog for the types of droughts that we'll see under climate change. And so it would be really useful to understand uh, how they affected migration so that we can use that historical knowledge to inform what we think might happen in the future. Um, but again, we just haven't had the data to be able to see, to see what it did to populations on the ground. And one thing that we can see in these images is um, human settlement. And so we plan to pair data on um, the droughts. This is environmental data that we already have access to with newly created data on where people were located and how land was used to try and understand some of the social implications that these droughts had in the 1960s and 70s. Yeah, that's so interesting. And as you say, so important for climate um, as the, the climate changes, people are, are going to move and we know that's going to happen, but we have very little kind of quantitative evidence about exactly how it might happen. And yeah, trying to tease that out from the past is just so interesting and important. Yeah. And one thing that we're interested in studying is not just um, how many people were displaced, but where they went. Um, so it's very different policy implications if displaced people go and integrate into the formal sector of cities versus if it leads to growth in slums. Um, and so just trying to understand how all of that has played out in the past will hopefully inform how we manage these type of crises in the future. Yeah, absolutely. So one more question, Hannah, before we go to uh, our top of the stack segment, um, which is just uh, kind of a, a nuts and bolts question, which is how did you or your colleagues get access to all these photos? And like, where did the idea come from to do this project? It's so different from most of the other kind of uh, research projects that we talk about on the show. I'd love to learn a little bit more about its origins. Mm -hmm. So all credit um, for that goes to my co-authors at Stockholm University, um, Andreas Madsim and Anna Tomset. They uh, discovered the archive and realized the similarities between it and satellite imagery 
and had the idea that we can apply all of this infrastructure that the research community has developed to uh, extract information from satellite images to these aerial photographs. Um, and so they not only found the archive, but raised the funding to digitize it, and they built a team that uh, is able to assemble the data and also has kind of the economics expertise to examine uh, questions we care about. So most of the team is interested in some way in sustainable development, but people have different areas of expertise. Uh, some people are development economists or focused on infrastructure. Uh, we have environmental economists. And so we're hoping that together we can kind of uh, push forward the fields of sustainable development using this new data set. Yeah, that's so cool. Well, um, thank you so much, Hannah, for coming on the show and introducing us to you know some of your research. Really looking forward to getting to know it in more detail uh, as we get to work with you, uh, or as I get to work with you in the, the months and years ahead. Um, but let's close it out now with our uh, question that we ask everyone who comes on the show, which is to recommend something that you've watched or read or heard related to the environment or not related to the environment. We're not too picky, uh, but just something you think is really interesting that you think our listeners would enjoy. And I'll start with um, the latest article in The New Yorker from Elizabeth Colbert um, called The Lost Canyon Under Lake Powell. It's in the August 16th edition of The New Yorker. Um, it's all about uh, what's happening in Glen Canyon, um, which I, I want to say is in Utah. Um, so as listeners will know, the Colorado River Basin is experiencing you know, a really big drought. It might be a mega drought. Um, reservoirs like Lake Powell uh, and Lake Mead are sinking rapidly. And that has all sorts of negative implications. But one of the cool things about it is that it is revealing all these wonders in Glen Canyon that have been submerged for decades. Um, and so in the article, Elizabeth, uh, you know, rides a boat around um, this canyon and explores all these alcoves and talks about them. And it's it's really fascinating. Uh, so I'd really recommend that for those of you who are interested in, you know, history and uh, geology and, and drought, of course, too. Um, but how about you, Hannah? What's at the top of your stack? That's a great recommendation. I'm looking forward to reading it. Um, so one thing I recently read was Migrations by Charlotte McGonaghy. It's a book, um, a work of fiction that takes place in what I think is the not too distant future. Um, and it takes place during a mass extinction event uh, caused by climate change. And uh, the story is about a researcher who is determined to follow the last Arctic turns on their migration from Greenland to Antarctica. Uh, so these are these really fascinating birds that make a pole-to-pole -pole migration every year in order to breed. But the book is really about this woman um, who's a bit broken. She's had a tragic past, um, and she's navigating a world which is also sort of broken, um, both ecologically and politically. But somehow it ends up having a pretty hopeful message. Um, I think a lot of it uh, boiled down to resilience, both human resilience and the resilience of the natural world. Um, and so I found it both a very emotional but also uplifting book. Um, and it just has these beautiful descriptions of natural landscapes and of um, all the different animals on earth. And um, it makes you think pretty deeply about our role as humans and about the responsibility that we have to other species. Yeah, that sounds really interesting. I'll have to check that out. Great. Well, thank you so much, Hannah. Uh, once again, a new fellow at RFF for coming on the show and telling us about your fascinating work. We really appreciate it. Thank you for having me. You've been listening to Resources Radio. Learn how to support resources for the future at rff.org support. If you have a minute, we'd really appreciate you leaving us a rating or a comment 
on your podcast platform of choice. Also, feel free to send us your suggestions for future episodes. Resources Radio is a podcast from Resources for the Future. RFF is an independent, nonprofit research institution in Washington, D.C. Our mission is to improve environmental, energy, and natural resource decisions through impartial economic research and policy engagement. The views expressed on this podcast are solely those of the podcast guests and may differ from those of RFF experts, its officers, or its directors. RFF does not take positions on specific legislative proposals. Resources Radio is produced by Elizabeth Wasson, with music by me, Daniel Ramey. Join us next week for another episode.